My purpose this morning is to, uh, first and foremost, to share that I'm just like you. I sometimes get discouraged about things. Discouragement uh, we find in different landscapes. We can be discouraged about how our lives are, are going or uh, we can be discouraged uh, regarding our Christian life about maybe our failures. But the discouragement I'm going to talk about this morning and share with you has to do with a broader landscape, and it's the landscape of the world, the world that we live in. And in doing so, I'm going to, I'll, I'll end up sharing just a few personal thoughts uh, regarding my own times of discouragement, given things. I know sometimes people have said things to me that have that sound like, or they when they talk to me, that I'm I'm always um, I won't say hopeful. I never seem to be discouraged. That's not the case. I'm I'm part of uh, your humanity too, and so I'm very familiar with discouragement. I just don't always show it. Um, and I wanted to share uh, what I call my remedy, a remedy for my discouragement in particular about the evils, the evil times in our, and the evils that's in our world. When I first became a Christian, uh, when I first uh, began that walk, I was always discouraged about my initial journey uh, I was under the impression, as I shared with someone even this week, that I was under the impression that once I became a Christian, that everything that I had struggled with in my life would just simply disappear. And it was about that time that there was a popular song that came out. Uh, I forget who did it, but I never promised you a rose garden. And I remember that song. Well, I learned that that wasn't the case, uh, and so I fought discouragement uh, personally, you know, about the Christian life. The reason was, uh, even though I, I was raised in, in a Christian home, the fact was I was dumber and dirt about Christianity. I just didn't know a lot of stuff. New stories, but I didn't know how they applied, so I, I struggled with that. But during that time, there seemed to be um, uh, an encouragement from the, I guess, society, the world, the church, people around me. So no matter how discouraged I might have been about my own personal life or, or how I was trying to live a Christian life, um, there was a support. I could see that the good in the world is good. Well, you know, years, decades later, we don't, or I'm not seeing that kind of support, uh, and it is discouraging. From my standpoint, it's discouraging uh, the evil that we're seeing. I'll tell you, I'm discouraged because I worry about my kids and my grandkids.
I get discouraged because I get emotional. <laughs> I worry about, uh, you know, I get discouraged about the church, uh, not ours necessarily. But when I read reports and I read studies and things, I, I sometimes will just close my eyes and I think, you know, what in the world's going on? Even we, I think we all know, and allow me to just uh, meander for a bit, okay? There is a, a, an incredible amount of discouragement in, in our land right now be, oh, from institutions. We are very discouraged about our institutions that we used to hold on very high standards. We read stories about individuals, dads killing kids, kids killing their parents. Evil. Just evil. We get discouraged about the economy because we can't get a straight answer a lot of times. Education politics, our own safety. I mean, who would have thought that you would have been afraid to just drive down the highway, you know, or walk out in your yard only to be shot dead by a drive-by? I mean, who would have thought of that even, you know, 10, 15 years ago? We're not civil anymore. That's my conclusion, or at least my one of the sources of my um, discouragement, our, our world, our, and, I, and, I, and I'll shrink it down, the world in which we live is not civil. We don't understand things. We, we, <clears throat> we're unhappy with our leaders. We're unhappy with who was in, who's in, and who wants to be in. We're just constantly unhappy. That's discouraging to me. But one of the things that triggered my thought on this, uh, or I guess gave me uh, an itch to talk about this, is one of the more recent surveys shows that even after the last three years, that, that even people in my generation, my age, have decided, in fact, 22, I think it was 22% of people, uh, we, they call us boomers, you know, which I now, I'm discouraged that that's, that's an insult. I always enjoyed being called a boomer, you know. But 22% of them saying, saying they just stopped going, they stopped going to church. After the last three years, they're just not, not going anymore. And uh, they don't want to. And it seems to be, or at least it could be concluded, that they're just simply losing their faith in, in the presence of God in our world. And that's discouraging uh, to me. I think uh, sometimes we, we can begin thinking that people are just simply giving up rather than choosing to just continue to live uh, and do the right thing. And so... As I was thinking about that, um, I thought, well, you know, it's not new. I, I remember in the, in the scriptures, Elijah became very, very discouraged because he mistakenly assumed that he was the only one serving God. And God chastised him. He said, oh, you're wrong. 
There's 7,000 people that have not bowed their knees. And so that's what, um, that's what led me to want to share my remedy uh, for when I in encounter or when I feel discouraged. And it's out of Psalm 12. And it's a psalm that, it's a short psalm, and a lot of times you may just read through it, but let's, I would like to unpack it this morning because I think that it, it is a very, very enlightening um, psalm that is very appropriate for us today. I would like to uh, read it just in, in bits and pieces initially, but David is writing and so it's not the first time that uh, discouragement is discussed in the scriptures. But here's what he says. It's a prayer. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. Now, I understand that prayer because sometimes I, I, I wonder that. Where are, where are the good people? You know, what's happened to them? What's happened to the voices that had common sense or had common virtue? Or what happened to the voices that understood what true good is? That good is thinking of others more than yourself. And I think that's what the psalmist is saying here is, is it seems that at every turn he's saying, that there is evil and there is wicked, but more importantly, it's not that evil and wickedness just appeared. No, it's that the good has disappeared. Where, where are the good people? Where are the righteous? It seems that there are none. The language itself says this, that, you know, the godly man or the people that seem to be godly, they're absent. They're nowhere to be found. And in the society and culture that we live in, you could draw that conclusion, and, and as, a, as a result, you could become very discouraged because that seems to be the loudest voices that we hear today. We hear the voices, uh, you know, no matter what it's regarding or anything, it's, it's everyone is, uh, seems to be unhappy. Everything seems to be in disarray. And as a result, uh, we find ourselves dismayed. I, like myself, I, I read, read the paper or I read reports and I become dismayed. You become pessimistic, just like uh, David is describing here. Become pessimistic. Where is God? Where, where, is, where is the good man? Where is goodness? Where is it gone? How that affects us and how it affects me is uh, it's very easy to become de demoralized. You, you know, you're, 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 you're trying to do good. I mean, we have enough problems in our own personal life that of trying to aspire to please God and then on top of it, we're in a seemingly a godless society. And so it's just compounded. Causes us to become disheartened. That's actually what discouragement is, is we become disheartened. We resign to the fact that evil is and nothing can change it. 
and therefore we become discouraged. And that is his first two statements. He is very, very discouraged. It seems that no one is faithful, and not so much to the church. No one, it seems, at least in our land right now, it seems that way, that no one is faithful to uh, virtue, no one is faithful to truth, uh, no one is faithful to honor, no one is faithful, there is no faithfulness to that. But here's the thing, and I think that's a conclusion we can draw on that, is that when godliness disappears from a culture or from a people, faithfulness inevitably follows. I mean, if we don't believe in God, why be faithful to him? And that seems to be the case, as studies show, that less and less people are believing in God. Here, here are some numbers that were striking to me, and I follow it fairly closely, but in 1944, uh, we were in the middle of World War II, and things seemed to be spiraling out of control, both in Europe, and it was affecting our land and our country. Europe was, was uh, in turmoil. Asia was in turmoil. It seemed that nothing was going. 96% of Americans, 96% believed in God. It's odd and interesting that during that time, we still look back now all over the country and we see great churches and great uh, organizations that were started during that time because of the search for godliness by the people of this land. But then, as of recently, in this year, it has dropped from 96% in 2023, now it's down to 80%. Only 80% believe in God, and out of that, it's, there are some pretty stark numbers, but out of that, uh, we find that they believe in God, but they don't necessarily believe that they need to um, pursue God in religion or things of that sort. And, you know, that's, that's striking. But what's striking to me more about that is that when belief and trust and, and, and searching for God begins to disappear, well, then godly people are going to disappear because they don't believe in God. But then he goes ahead to say... Uh, about his world, the world they lives in. They speak idly, everyone with his neighbor, with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. That's a very interesting, very interesting verse. What he's saying is, is that as, as you know, he, he observes, as David observes his world, the world that he lives in, it just seems that everyone is more interested in everyone else, but yet they have no interest in themselves. Everyone in his world, and certainly that's true in our world, everyone is so interested in finding fault with others and being critical of others, and yet it's always at the expense of finding their own fault or being critical of, them own, of their own selves. And so I think, well, when I read that, I think, well, that's, that's our land also. They speak idly, everyone with his neighbor, with flattering lips and a double heart, double heart they speak. That's an interesting choice of words, a double heart. A single heart, we can be singular committed to living like we want to or singularly uh, committed to living for God, you know. That's a single heart, but a double heart. What exactly is a double heart? 
A double heart is this. We have little sayings. You speak out of both sides of your mouth. Um, Jesus says you cannot serve two masters. You'll either love the one and hate the other or despise the one and cling to the other. But yet that's the land that he lives in. And it seems to be that we have a very similar landscape. And it's discouraging when you find that uh, people will say good things with one people about someone and then later on they say completely the opposite as if there's no problem with that doing that whatsoever. People also, uh, at least in our day and time, seem to be that way. They have one heart to live like they want to, and then perhaps they may have another heart for their family, or they have a double heart with church or religion or whatever. And, it, and it's, um, it's a destructive way to live because, as Jesus says, you cannot serve two masters. That's discouraging to me. To me. It has been, always. And I think it is to you. Um, you know, you hire someone, they come to work, you, you're, you've got them there at, on your job, and you said this is your responsibility, and you walk in and you find that they're not doing their, they're doing some of their work that you want them to do, but then they're doing work for someone else on your time. No one thinks anything about that. That's discouraging. He goes ahead to say, and he says, and I find this interesting because this is the kind of thing that I think God's people do ask for. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaks proud things who have said, with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? I do think that it's natural that we want whatever we believe in we want everyone else to believe in it. And like I say, you know, one of the hardest lessons to learn is that the world doesn't live like we want to live. And the world doesn't think like I think. But yet that's what we want. And so we ask God, God, can you help us? Can you help our world? And I know for a fact in speaking with you in the church and in speaking with others in church, I know for a fact that people have prayed this line of prayer lord we pray we pray for help we need help in our country we need help with our leaders we need help with everything it is a righteous prayer and it comes i think from from a, a you know a, a good heart we we don't we don't want to make necessarily judgments on people but we don't have any reservations about asking god to make the judgment on someone Lord, can you help us in this? This causes discouragement. And, and the reason we go to God, the reason a prayer like this is prayed is because, number one, we feel helpless. David, ineffective. He felt ineffective. He was the king. And yet he could not facilitate goodness in his kingdom. Oh, that's a helpless feeling, isn't it? When you, when you want to help people do good, and yet you cannot help them because they refuse to do good. You seem like at times you're the lone voice. I think that was Elijah's problem. He felt like he was the lone voice, though he wasn't. But that was a prayer. That's what David says here. May the Lord, may the Lord cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaks proud things who have said. 
And this part is where I think we are today. With our tongue, we will prevail. Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? I gave some thought to that uh, regarding our own landscape. We are in a culture that truth, truth, seems to be something only in the past. It seems to be now that when we say something, it's true. It's not the case that what we say is true, but it's more the case now in the land we live in and the culture we live in that because I say that, or this, or I am this, or I feel this way. It's true. Truth has escaped our familiarity. And it's the loud voices with our tongue. And this is what was discouraging to David, I think. People, if you yell loud enough, often enough, to enough people, it's exactly what we, with our tongue, we will prevail. Our lips are our own. I can declare what I want about myself. No one can declare anything about me. That's the landscape we're in. Who is Lord over us? That's discouraging. You know, the psalmist wrote later in Psalms 52, he says this about the tongue, and he realized that, and so did James to the early church. But, he, but here's what the psalmist said. Here's what David said. Your tongue as he's describing his landscape, the tongue devises destruction like a sharp razor, working deceitfully. The tongue loves evil more than good, lying rather than speaking righteousness. You love all devouring words, you deceitful tongue. Now think about the land we live in right now, and think about that. When's the last time you've heard encouraging words from people? from writing, in news, in reports. I had to search a long time to find something encouraging that was written about or talked about. And usually it's on page 19, not the front page. For all of us who love God and are trying to pursue righteousness, perhaps you could say with me too, that's discouraging. I mean, that is just discouraging. We've become skilled, as David saw in his time, at manipulating the truth. We stretch it. We bend it. We make it fit our desires rather than our desires to fall under the banner of truth. If our desires are not what truth says, we change, not our desires, we change the truth. That's discouraging to me. And I think it was to David. When we want something to be true, like I said, and like he observed, we just simply use our tongues and we speak it over and over and over to as many people as we can. And we say it's true when in fact it's not. That's the land we live in. And it is. It's, uh, it's discouraging. But in this psalm, 
See, with all the discouragement that I'm depressingly talking to you about, here's a remedy. Out of the blue, out of nowhere, David records the words of the Lord. Here's what he says. For the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy, now I will arise, God says. I will set him in the safety for which he yearns. What God was saying to David is, no matter how discouraged you are, I've heard your prayer. I've heard your request. Now, I will rise up and I will make sure that you will have the desire of your heart. I like that because when that phrase, that small phrase, now I will arise, all of a sudden, David is able to remember the words of the Lord, the promises of the Lord, the power of his words. He remembers that when he feels hopeless, his hope resides in God. When he feels helpless, his help is in God, and that's what actually God is saying. I will arise, I will David, assist you. I will aid you. I will comfort you. That then would give David not discouragement, but it would be encouraging, it, wouldn't it? If we could remember, if we would just stop and remember in the midst of all the multitude's voices, what God has promised to his people and what God has forever said that he will do for his people, then we find that remedy, that remedy that instead of discouragement, we are encouraged. And from that encouragement of God's words, all of a sudden we can rest and we find contentment, we find satisfaction in spite of the bad landscape, we find insurance, assurance and encouragement. And the reason I say that is because the next verse is actually his recognition and his awareness that when you trust God, no matter how the landscape is, when you trust God, you are going to be able to have, as it were, a sweet song of God's faithfulness. Here's what he says. After hearing the Lord, after hearing what the Lord said, I will arise, I will give you safety for what you yearn. Then David writes, the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. From being discouraged from that first verse, we now find that he has found a remedy for that. And it resides in his trust in the Lord. He will not look to his kingdom. He did not look to his family. He did not look to those that he entrusted and were very close to him, such as jo Joab. He did not look to his son Absalom. He did not look to those around him. Instead, we read time and time again, David looked to God in his most dark, dark days. Why? Because as he writes here, the words of the Lord are pure words. They're not double-tongued. It's not a double heart. It's not untrue. They're pure. The words of the Lord are pure, like silver tried 
in the furnace of the earth, purified seven times, time and time again. And then he writes, and I think this is something that, give, that I, I sensed relief in this. And I, maybe that's what I was looking, maybe I sensed relief in this psalm because I find relief in the words of the Lord. When I'm discouraged, I find relief in the words of the Lord. You shall keep them, O Lord. You shall preserve them from this generation forever. The wicked prowl on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. But he says, you shall preserve them from this generation forever. You know, the psalmist wrote in various ways and various times about discouragement. In fact, there was another psalm, Psalm 94. Basically the same thing. Let me read that. Because, I, again, my point in this is discouragement is not your problem. And I'm always on top of things. I'm not. In fact, you may, you may think I'm on top of things. That's why you can't see my discouragement. But in reality, I'm at the bottom I'm more, maybe more discouraged than you are. But here's what the psalmist said. Lord, how long will the wicked, how long will the wicked triumph? They utter speech, they speak insolent things. All the workers of iniquity boast in themselves. They break in pieces your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. So it's not an uncommon theme that we as God's people would be discouraged. But what we need to remember is, uh, again, what the prophet Jeremiah uh, recorded, that God told Jeremiah, Jeremiah, write this down. I want my people to know this. Here's what God said. I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil. I know my thoughts are to give you a future and a hope. You will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. That's part of my remedy for my discouragement, is I know and I believe that the Lord listens to our prayers. You will seek me. You will find me. And when you search for me with all your heart, I will be found by you, says the Lord. No matter how discouraging things might be, let us always remember that the Lord hears our prayers and he is willing to give his words not only of comfort, but as a remedy to anything that might discourage us in the lives that we live. Psalmist wrote at another point, and he wants us to remember, unto the upright there arises light in the darkness. I think that that is what David discovered in this psalm. When he heard the words of the Lord, when the Lord said, I've, I've, I've heard you, that's kind of a light in a very dark place. And honestly, right now, we've given everything. I look for that light. But I don't look for that light from people like me. I don't look for the light from our leaders. I don't look from the, for that light from anywhere except God, because I think that's where that true light comes. Why? Because God 
The psalmist writes, is gracious and full of compassion. A good man deals graciously and lends, and he'll not be shaken. He'll not be afraid of evil tidings. His heart is steadfast, and his heart is established. He will not be afraid. And that seems to be the prayers of many of us right now. Lord, we want help because not only are we discouraged, but we're afraid because we feel helpless. We see things that we don't understand, and we wonder where and if it will stop. But David later writes, and he says this of the Lord, and again, I think that this is the the song for each generation, and we do think about that, not only where we are in our lives, but the generations following us, and by that I mean our children and our grandchildren. We want them to remember that it is the words of the Lord and the promises that he has made that will sustain us on the darkest days that we might encounter. He writes, the psalmist says, I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress. On my darkest days, in my most discouraging times, truly the psalmist was right. God is our refuge in our times of storm. My God in him will I trust. He will deliver from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. He'll cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. And because of that, you will not be afraid by the terror of night, nor the error that flies by day, nor the pestilence that walks in darkness, nor the destruction that lays waste at noonday. Why? Because God is our refuge and our strength in our time of need. Discouragement is not something that is just in one generation and not another. Discouragement is in every generation. Let me remind you of what Paul wrote to Timothy. Paul had lived a life an interesting life, as a matter of fact. And in living it, he came to the end of his life and he was concerned about that next generation, which was Timothy and Titus. And he would write some of the most interesting things, but yet very poignant. And here's what he wrote Timothy. Know this, Timothy, that in the last days, perilous times will come. Men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, liars, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. He was, he was discouraged too. But he trusted in the Lord, and he was trying to tell that to Timothy. So for us, my, in conclusion, it's this. I'm no different than you are. I sometimes get discouraged. Not about the things that perhaps you might think I might be discouraged. I get discouraged about the land that we live in. The things that I remember used to be and are no longer. I get discouraged because people are so dismissive of what is true. They would rather make up what, is, what they believe to be true. And I get discouraged 
But I find that my remedy, my relief, my pause always resides in the Lord. No matter how sleepless I might have a night, or no matter how much I might worry about something, ultimately I've learned this, that when I go to the Lord and I take my, my burden to him, he doesn't necessarily take me out of the landscape. He just reminds me that while I'm in the landscape, he will always be there with me. That's why he said centuries ago to his people, if my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves, pray, seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. I'll forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. And my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to prayer made in this place. So uh, for me, and I just wanted to share, share that, I do have a remedy for discouragement. And if you're like me, you have discouragement too. And I just want to share, kind of like when you taste something good and it's so good, you tell somebody, you've got to try this. It is so, so good. The best remedy for your discouragement is the Lord. He will relieve you and he will help you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the time that we can come quietly and and I think with an open heart, Lord, share our burdens and our concerns. Already, even as we're here today as a church, Lord, you know that we each in our own private lives have shared our concerns and our discouragements. But Lord, I'm thankful that you've preserved for us these passages like what David wrote. That we know that even he was discouraged and he wondered where all goodness was and where faithfulness was and you answered him and you promised that you would take care of his discouragement. I pray, Lord, that we as your people would not become so discouraged that our knees would buckle or that we would refuse to follow you or that we would just lose heart. May we not be disheartened. May we not have feeble knees. Lord, may we continually Rise up and give you thanks for what you've done in our lives. And we'll give you thanks in our Lord's name. Amen. Let's stand this morning as we come to a close and as we give thought to this and give thought to things. We want to sing a song, a hymn. And as we do, I, I, I like the idea of sometimes just, uh, just pondering and thinking what the words of the, of the song say. Let that be our prayer. And if you'd like to come and pray, please do. You can pray where you are for sure. But if you'd like to come to the altars, others will come and pray with you because they share the same burden I'm sure you do as we sing. With 109. 109, as they lead us in this song. There is none like you. touch my heart like you do I could search for all eternity long and find there is none like you 